You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher, with me, Dr Mick Pope. This episode is entitled, The Fall and the Anthropocene. Once more, I am going back to my um, library of things I've written over the time, as I'm a bit slow approaching summer. It's a really hot night here in Melbourne. If you can hear the air conditioning in the background, I apologise, but it's it's really warm uh, in Melbourne, otherwise known as Nam, by those who were here for tens of thousands of years before us whitefellows. Uh, but this whole issue of the fall and the Anthropocene, I think it's important to, uh, from a Christian perspective, to think about why things go wrong in the world. And the fall is a classic doctrine. I realise it's it's complex and it's problematic and there's a lot we can say. And I've already touched upon this in other episodes, to talking about how we might start to think about it from an evolutionary uh, perspective and how we bring that and the Christian faith together. But this... Uh, episode is meant to just be a bit of a survey of, of, of a very select uh, few of thinkers who've written on the topic and hopefully you'll find this stimulating in one way shape or form. No discussion of the doctrine of the fall would be complete without discussing St Augustine. Now Augustine is claimed by Calvinists and Catholics, mystics and scholastics alike. He lived between 354 and 430-430. Um, of AD or of the Common Era, if you prefer. He's a former Manichaean and Neoplatonist, and it's debatable that he, he never really, um, you know, um, removed those shackles, as it were, in, in his theology. And I think in Manichaeism is, is very much evident in his attitude towards sex, for example. But anyway, that's uh, debatable and for another time. Uh, his theology of sin and the fall includes the Neoplatonic concept of privatio boni, or the privation of the good. To understand Augustine on evil, you've got to understand him on God and the good. And Augustine held that God's goodness is perfect and unchanging. Uh, so Augustine asks if a good God created a good creation, and that of course is the message that we get in Genesis 1, and that good God permeates it, whence is evil? Where does it come from? Augustine understood that the fall of angels preceded that of Adam. Now, Peter King observes that the devil, quote, committed the first moral misdeed in an entirely good universe, newly created by an entirely good God, end quote. Hence, Augustine takes the devil's fall to be paradigmatic of the fall of, of human beings, as evil enters the world through free choice. The fall of humans is, quote, recapitulation of diabolical sin. Uh, end quote, via the temptation of the serpent. And that's, of course, Genesis chapter 3. The devil's sin was pride, a turning of his will towards himself as the ultimate good. This turning was a free choice, 
for some angels joined him while others did not. However, Augustine still locates the fall of humans with the sin of Adam, the initial act of privation or loss of some good. And I think I've, I've talked about in previous programs, of course, that's not what you see in Genesis 3, but it's the way in which Paul reads it through the lens of Christ, um, any sense of uh, the fall in, in that choice. Augustine argues that only that which is good can be corrupted, and corruption does harm because it reduces the good. Therefore, quote, all things that are corrupted suffer privation of some good, so that they lose some sense of the, their goodness. It follows that if things are, uh, quote, deprived of all good, they will be nothing at all, end quote. So Augustine holds a high uh, value of creation in this regard, that it's it's ultimately good, it's creation of good God, and sin and evil are a devaluing, a reduction of that good. So if something's totally evil, then it's, he believes it's non-existent. Augustine therefore concludes that whatever exists is good, and that evil has no substance. God makes all things good in themselves, and collectively very good. That, of course, is the end of Genesis 1. Because evil is privation of good, evil can only exist in the presence of good. That is, it's parasitic. And you get a strong sense of that, I think, when you read Lord of the Rings, for example. Where do orcs come from? The parasitic, the perversions of elves and human beings. Rowan Williams notes that if evil has no substance, then the only way, quote, it can be desired or sought is by the exercise of the goods of mental and effective life swung around by error to a vast misapprehension a mistaking of the unreal and groundless for the real, end quote. This, in essence, is the fall, a desiring for the unreal, or as Sarah Coakley puts it, it is corrupted or misdirected desire of some sort that is the special mark that is sin, along with the disobedience to divine instruction that then follows. Not original desire itself, which in its uncorrupted form appears to have a special role in propulsion towards the divine, propulsion to consideration of the goods of the earth, and even propulsion towards a certain likeness of God. Augustine describes wickedness as, quote, a perversity of the will twisted away from the higher substance, that is, God, as the ultimate good. Reading Romans 5.15, Augustine concludes that Adam's sin is sufficient for the condemnation of all and passed down by propagation. So sex, uh, sorry, sin is a sexually transmitted disease. That's a bit of a rough um, summary of, of Augustine, but you get the picture. In Adam, quote, all have sinned, that's Romans 5.12, so that we are all that once man. Since the inner life is determinative of our actions, Augustine argues, it is what causes us to sin, not simply the imitation of others. So he doesn't have a great, it would seem, role for imitation and the impacts of culture, which I think is problematic if you you're not able to understand or accommodate um, corporate sin and structural sin, as I've, uh, as I've argued in previous episodes. One consequence of the fall is death. Augustine argues that the body is earth, but the soul is not. So it's, I guess it's a form of dualism, hence his Neoplatonism playing a role here. And hence, if Adam had not sinned, he would have not been turned in, into a spiritual body. Davis Young notes that Augustine did not believe that the fall causes animal death for simply, uh, quote, one animal is the nourishment of another, which is terribly reductive of non-human creatures, but you get the picture. And there is no evil in them for, they, uh, for them to be punished for. 
Likewise, Augustine did not believe that thorns and thistles were created after the fall, but the human's relationship to them changed. That is, the goodness of creation was not substantially disrupted. On a corporate level, Augustine only recognises two cities. Quote, One city of men who choose to live by the standard of the flesh, another of those who choose to live by the standard of the spirit. Paul uh, Weltman observes that these two cities are rooted in their loves. Augustine writes that those of the free city, quote, form a community where there is no love of a will that is personal, end quote, but instead share one heart. The city of God is not to be confused with the church, which also contains the reprobate. That's a nasty word, but anyway. This city is the New Jerusalem, which has been coming down since the beginning of the church, and at the eschaton or end times, quote, the splendor of that city will be made apparent. Augustine's understanding of the fall is helpful in that he maintains the goodness of God and of God's creation. Augustine also helps us to understand the inner psychology of the will and the perverted or misdirected desires. However, in understanding evil as the privation of the good, he insists that the initial good of creation is moral rather than functional, as many scholars now understand it. It is difficult, given what we know from evolution, to argue for a human understanding of nature as moral or immoral when it is largely amoral. Further, evil as privation might be intellectually satisfying, uh, you know, but it's unlikely to be satisfying in pastoral settings for people who have experienced evil in tangible ways. Finally, physical death as a consequence of the fall is difficult to square with modern biology which demonstrates that death is both a part of creaturely existence and fundamental to human origins. So, ultimately, I find a more careful reading of Augustine as helpful, but just not as helpful as, as could be. Um, I'm going to skip over the bit about Thomas Aquinas. One of the things I got from reading Aquinas is that he essentially systematizes the writings of Augustine and, and structures them in a, in a systematic manner. More interesting, however, is to look at Irenaeus, who talks about immaturity and a fall upwards. Now, Irenaeus of Leon, who lived between 130 and 202 CE, was a second century theologian who wrote to combat the heresy of the Gnostics. He acknowledges a fall, which he describes as God's, <coughs> excuse me, God's creatures sinning and revolting from a state of submission to God. Irenaeus is content to, quote, leave the cause why, while all things were made of, by God, um, this fall should have occurred. So he, he's happy to set this question aside. That said, he does explore reasons in the exercise of human agency, given our created nature, the nature of the good yet unfinished creation around us, and the nature of God. Now, God is the maker of heaven and earth, being preeminently superior to men, sick. Um, good God created the world ex nihilo, which is not what Genesis 1 says, as I've argued elsewhere. But anyway, creation is not described as morally perfect, but God bestowed, quote, harmony on all things and assigning them their own place, and, quote, a nature suitable to the character of the life assigned them. There was a functional goodness to the world, in other words. Likewise, human beings were created with a, a nature suitable to them as a, quote, free agent from the beginning to obey God without coercion. This choice is real and not constrained insofar as we are all of the same nature, neither one being created good nor the other bad. Irenaeus describes us variously as having 
independent will and being possessed of free will from the beginning, yet always in the context of the counsel of God and the fact that God is possessed of free will. While our free agency explains our fallen nature, it is not the whole story. Our agency operates within the context of divine purpose and the unfinished nature of creation. And you can see where this will naturally gel with things like evolution. Humans were created as rational beings, not as the irrational animals, again, an overstatement what we know now from biology, which merely follow necessity and compulsion. We were formed with the faculty of increase and called upwards from lesser beings to those greater ones which are in his presence. And so there's a real sense of emergence, I think, here in the modern sense. I've talked about it beforehand. Um, and I think you can articulate that without being quite so um, down on non-human creatures as Irenaeus was. We are spiritual creatures with a spiritual orientation, yet the spiritual orientation is in process. We are to struggle for immortality as those uh, who have known the earthly one to make knowing the heavenly one more honourable. So he, he thinks it's a natural process to go through, if you like, the earthly life first. Created things are necessarily inferior to their creation. Uh, that must be creator, there's a typo. And Irenaeus likens humans to infants. We are not yet ready to endure the greatness of the glory. And while it was possible for God to make us perfect, we could not receive this perfection freely chosen, uncoerced submission to God. The greatness of glory comes through the incarnation through which the Son of God, although perfect, recapitulates human history, going through the infantile stages of humanity so that we might be able to receive him. God's eventual goal for humans to, quote, receive a faculty of the uncreated through the gratuitous bestowal of eternal existence upon them by God. Um, so that's our telos, that's our purpose. While we grow through the exercise of free agency in a developing creation, our final state is not one of moral bootstrapping, but divine grace. Irenaeus believed that first that nature should be exhibited, and then the mortal swallowed up by the immortal. And that's echoes of Paul in 1 Corinthians. And so we can't uh, ascribe to God the infirmity of their nature, that is us, when it is the natural process of maturity we are to go through. Irenaeus also describes this process as learning. We learn from experience uh, that this is an evil thing which deprives him of life. Receiving the knowledge of the good, we, quote, become more tenacious uh, of its preservation. Irenaeus asks how we might how we can be immortal when, in our mortal nature, we do not obey our master. Firstly, we hold the rank of humans and then afterwards partake of the glory of God. This is what one might call a soul-making theodicy, one that appears to require the evil we see now, or at least not uh, requires the existence of not a perfect state, if you will. So is it sensible to speak of a fall in Irenaeus, as, as we do with um, Augustine? Insofar as human beings have a future orientation to which we consistently deviate, then humans are fallen. As for the vast majority of creation, it remains in, subject in subjection to him, that is God. This is because they are largely irrational and can do nothing of their own will. Again, that's an overstatement as we know now from science. Irenaeus does not speculate uh, as to its precise origins, in the original human pair, which I'm taking he believes is a literal human pair. Likewise, his focus appears to be on the necessity of an immature human state needed to reach maturity, as opposed to nature that has fallen. Humans are created 
with an initial, initially good nature, fit to the purpose of choosing to obey God. While we choose not to obey God, yet the human experience is such that God's free will counsels us to mature through our struggles to obtain the final perfection of glorification. In the Incarnation, Christ reveals the divine will in a way in which we are able to receive the divine glory in a manner suitable to our present nature. Uh, Irenaeus' account is unfortunately altogether too brief. He does not fully account for the gratuitous nature of suffering in order for each of us to reach glory, nor the state of those who can't learn in this life uh, to choose good from evil, compared to Augustine assigning the unbaptized infant to hell which is even worse, right? He does not develop the basis of soul-making theodicies, um, or rather he does develop the basis of soul-making theodicies that are consistent with an evolving universe, as in the canonic thinking of John Polkinghorne. And in the second half of the program, it's his work that I will turn to. Welcome back to the program. And we're looking at the issue of the Christian doctrine of the fall and the problem of the Anthropocene by doing a very brief uh, sweeping tour of the history of a select group of thinkers. We were looking at uh, Augustine and basically skip right over uh, Thomas Aquinas, who's uh, something of uh, a systematizer of the thought of Augustine, and then looked at Irenaeus. And now we're looking at someone who I guess can be classed as an Irenaean-type thinker, and that's John Polkinghorne, a former theoretical physicist and now uh, Anglican priest and theologian. Now, Polkinghorne poses the question, quote, how can a world of cancer and concentration camps be the creation of a God at once all-powerful and all-good? It's that classic problem of theodicy. We can turn to the fall to explain moral evil, but cannot continue with Augustine in the belief that human choices uh, have corrupted the cosmos from a prelapsarian paradisical perfection. In other words, everything was, you know, every creature was vegetarian, everything was hunky-dory until uh, a man and a woman ate an apple. Um, so science reveals that creation is in process from continental drift to evolution by natural selection. And so Polkinghorne stresses this, that creation is not just ex nihilo, but also continua. Creation is allowed by and with its creator to make itself. This means creation is never finished until God brings it to its eschatological fulfilment. And you can hear the echoes of Irenaeus in this. And, you know, Polkinghorne uses that classic analogy of the difference between performance of a script versus an improvisation. So there's, there is a score, but there's a lot of improvisation until we reach the final bar. And so creation implies the act of kenosis or self-emptying on God's behalf. I've talked about this in another program that allows the other actors in on the, um, the performance, if you will. This stands in a stark contrast with Augustine and also Aquinas, who emphasise the primacy of divine causation working through secondary causes in order to keep God from being responsible for evil while maintaining divine sovereignty. So that's a bit of a theological sleight of hand, I think. For Polkinghorne, as for Irenaeus, creation is in process that is open to creaturely causality as well as divine causality or will. 
In place of death as a consequence of the Augustinian fall, Polkinghorne describes death, predation, genetic mutations, etc. as part of the free process of an evolving creation, where God can't, quote, be held to be totally and directly responsible for all that happens. Following Irenaeus, the world is functionally good and allows human beings to become mature. Now, Polkinghorne uh, echoes Reinhold Niebauer's remark that original sin is the only verifiable Christian doctrine. Yet, Polkinghorne dismisses a purely historical, literal understanding in favour of a mythical one. To him, it, quote, portrays life as we now experience it, without removing the question of how this came to be uh, given creation is still supposed to be good. The powerful myth of Genesis 3, as he puts it, explains our alienation from God that we are not self um, not self-sufficient and need to be reunited with the ground of all being. There's a bit of tillage for you again. This alienation accounts uh, for not just individual sins, but also for human structures and their oppression and exploitation. It's not a single ancestral act, but is tied to the emergence of consciousness in evolutionary history and the consciousness of self and the divine. The appearance of consciousness is a prerequisite for the struggle between the self and divine pole and the subsequent incurvitus in say, or curving inwards, uh, that you see in Genesis 3.15. And I've noted this in other programming notes that only a self-conscious and God-conscious being has the choice between following the self or the divine will as revealed. Choosing the former means being inward-looking to creaturely desires alone and hence sinning. So sin, then, is the assertion of the autonomy of the self and its embeddedness in cultural and social structures that it has propagated down the generations. That is what Augustine argued against uh, when he insisted that sin was propagated by generation, not by imitation. And so Irenaeus and then unfollowing Polkinghorne deny this. Um, and that said, Polkinghorne also allows for the possibility of a genetic component while rejecting socio-biological genetic determinism. That is, it's all in your genes and there's nothing you can do about it. In contrast to Augustine, or Augustine, whichever you prefer, I've, I've pronounced it both ways, Polkinghorne imagines that humans have always been mortal and been subject to physical death. That's pure biology. In an RNA move, Polkinghorne sees our fall upwards as a turning death to mortality equating the existential awareness of death as alienation from God. There has to be more uh, than mere death to separate us from God, ultimately. This is where Polkinghorne brings in eschatology. Science can only tell us so much about personal and cosmic scale fate. God will interrupt this natural unfolding. So it's, I think, from Polkinghorne's point of view, then it's impossible to believe in a non-interventionalist God. God gets God's hands dirty at some point, and does something that's radically different to that which would happen if the universe was just wound up and left to its own devices. Polyhorn's view of creation continua and free process is canonic in that creatures, uh, creating creatures with free agency, God empties God's self of being the only determinative will. There is risk of creaturely freedom going against the divine will. Calvinists hate this, I realise. Uh, and, and this, I guess, can also be described as a form, or it certainly supports open theism. Divine action and creaturely freedom can coexist in a way in which both are true to themselves. Creatures as free within their natures and God as free and unconstrained, except insofar as God's self-limitation allows creaturely agency. 
uh, in turn, it distances God from being the cause of evil without distancing God with relating to the evil in creation. So to put that more simply, God makes way for other creatures to have uh, genuine decisions. But while that might appear in the short term to frustrate the divine plan to fill the universe uh, with goodness and God's self, in the end it can't. Uh, Polkinghorn is able on this basis to critique a number of other models of theodicy or you know, why there is evil and suffering. Polkinghorn suggests that God allows God's self to suffer, seen supremely in the Incarnation. Polkinghorn's answer to the fall is the incarnation of the pre-existent Christ, which he reaches by moving from the work of Christ to the person of Christ. God alone can redeem us from sin, only divine action can save us. Following Vernon White, Polkinghorn argues that unless God has suffered, been tempted and died, he has no moral authority to overcome them. God works redemption through involvement, not magic. In a world that has seen Auschwitz, a crucified God, quote, embraces and overcomes the world. And um, I'm pretty sure this is a, uh, a reference to Bonhoeffer, but only the suffering God can help. Um, I really do need to, <clears throat> excuse me, read more Bonhoeffer. Um, so Polkinghorne's view is not without problems. Um, there's some contentious issues in, in terms of how he thinks about divine causality in the world. I won't go into those things. Um, but he also seems to suggest that suffering in the world is not gratuitous and contributes to a greater good in some mysterious way. And it's difficult to see in some of the examples he considers, natural evil such as cancer and moral evil such as Auschwitz could not be considered to be gratuitous. Thirdly, he understands natural evil as part of the way the universe works while not seeking to erase the evil of it. Being made in the image of God, our perception of evil must be taken seriously. So is it possible to have it both ways? Take evil seriously and yet naturalise so much of it as necessary, much as Irenaeus does? Fittingly then, Polkinghorne emphasises that the resurrection is key, which points to what he calls the transformation of this present mortal world. So it's interesting, as a physicist, he's ultimately committed to some very... Some things that come outside of the physical world, which are not, if you like, directly studyable by the same kind of methods that don't form the same category. Now, I would, uh, in the time that we have left, look at the work of Walter Wink. Uh, and I'm going to do this incredibly briefly. But one of the things about Wink's work is ultimately how he identifies the structures what he calls the powers, and he, he does a fair bit of work to look at the vocabulary in the New Testament of things, um, of the you know thrones and powers and principalities and all these words, and sees that that one in some contexts they speak very clearly of human institutions, and in others they speak rather clearly of what we might call demonic. Now the thing with Wink is that. He denies the independent existence of the dynamic, dynamic, demonic, or the supernatural. And I think he, he does that by a quite silly reductio ad absurdum argument, which is reduction to the absurd, absurd. He says, you know, if there's a riot, does that mean that um, there's a demon of the riot? And what happens when the riot dissipates? Does that mean the demon dissipates? And, and look, I've, I've seen 
Now we've all seen these preachers on TV who go on about a demon of this, a demon of that, a demon of the other, and really overdo it. But that doesn't mean that one necessarily needs to dismiss the idea of independent semi or super-personal realities, as, as um, Tom Wright talks about, that can interact with the human structures. Wink instead wants to see them as not merely being sociological, but some emergent character of institutions gone wrong. In other words, he, he'd like to say that, and I think this is true to a, a good degree, that God likes order. That's the message of Genesis 1, the ordering of creation for the, the fruitful propagation of, of all species and, and the running of human society and agriculture and so on. And we see what happens when disorder reigns, when you have, for example, I'm going to come out and say this, when you have a, a world ruler, or world leader rather, um, who says an election's been faked and stolen and this, that and the other, and stirs up violence, partisan violence, and, and threatens um, one of the most prosperous and powerful nations in the world with the potential for, uh, as some may see it, civil war. That's disorder. That's chaos. Um, that's not good or wise rule. And look, there are plenty of countries you can point the finger at um, at various times in world history that have done that, but you, you don't really expect it of the, the leader of the free world. In what sense is that demonic? Or in what sense might we say that Exxon lying for 30 odd years about the reality of climate change is, is somewhat demonic? Uh, and whether you want to believe in the independent existence or reality of the demonic that interacts with this, or whether you want to see it as a manifestation of corporate fallenness, it doesn't really matter. The point that Wink and William Stringfellow and others make is that you could have an organisation filled with Christians, people who profess the faith, uh, but if the framework, the worldview, the structures, the laws, the institutions are all twisted and broken and don't serve the needs of the many, then it doesn't really matter about all that level of individual um, repentance if that's not manufactured, if that's not made apparent in a change in the structures. And so those structures ultimately become demonic. That seems to be the, the central thrust of Wink's work. And uh, he's, he's well worth reading in this regard. So Wink presents us with a view of the fall, which is explicitly inclusive of human institutions in understanding systems, organisations and nations as having a life and spirituality of their own. He's able to explain how systems become repressive. Furthermore, it can explain why it is insufficient alone to convert individuals, as I talked about, to fix social problems. Wink states that evangelism is always social action, and social action is always evangelism. The two are necessary. And so, you know, this is a big, big part of me thinking about Christian humanism as opposed to modern forms or what I might call perversions of evangelicalism that don't see activism as being important or significant because it's, quote unquote, all about preaching the gospel, which they understand as the uh, Jesus on the cross dying for the sins of the world to undo and historical fall understood in Augustinian terms. So you can see why I might prefer a more Irenaean-type theodicy, because that can take science seriously, and then a Winkian, and we don't have time to get into Stringfellow, who applies the blowtorch of the Book of Revelation to American society, particularly the way the African-Americans were treated. He was a lawyer in Harlem, but also the horrors of the Vietnam War, which was an unjust and unnecessary conflict.
So, but I just love this quote by Wink, or, or well, my summary of, of Wink. I don't know, it's a precise quote that um, social action and, and um, so evangelism is always social action and social action is always evangelism. Yes, of course, you need to, quote unquote, tell people the gospel. Uh, but if you are no different than the culture around you, if all you do is bay uh, for the blood of, of criminals in executions or to hop into another conflict that's clearly geared around the acquisition of someone else's oil to continue to exacerbate the problem of climate change, specifically in the Anthropocene in general, um, then what attraction to the gospel is there? We are no different. Uh, to the worst of the world, not the best. So I guess to to bring things to a conclusion then, is the terminology of the fall still useful? And what can we draw out for a theology of the fall for the Anthropocene? Uh, so a couple of things stand out. Firstly, Augustine and to a lesser extent Aquinas, which I didn't talk about, we take the idea of twisting of the will from the good to relative and lesser goods. This deprives the good itself and lover of that good of some of its goodness. Idolatry and greed, desiring after lesser goods, are key factors in the Anthropocene. So, for example, the intransigence of the fossil fuel industry in its pursuit of cheap energy and denial of global warming, or I might add our own ceaseless collection of things that we don't need. Secondly, from Irenaeus and Polkinghorne, we learn that humans are on a journey from infancy to maturity and that creation itself is incomplete. Um, that journey is completed by the incarnation and our eschatological glorification. So there's a, a past and a future orientation. Uh, Polkinghorne talks about new advances in knowledge as a fall upwards, precisely because the new enlarged powers open up the possibility of good and evil. In this view, humanity's negative impacts on the Earth system, known as the Anthropocene, is possible but not inevitable. Instead, he offers us kenosis as a model for our ethic. Just as God made room for the others in creation and Christ emptied himself on the cross, so too we must make way for the other, be it human or non-human. Given also that creation is unfinished and at times chaotic in the Anthropocene, the Earth will resist our efforts to interfere with it. The pushing of the planetary boundaries that have offered support for human civilization will ultimately undermine us if we're not careful. And third, Wink uh, sees the fall as both timeless as myth and yet experienced in time. The principalities and powers that I spoke about very briefly arise from human sinfulness but also influence it such that we can be oppressed and indeed possessed by demonic powers. Living in the Anthropocene means not dealing uh, with individual sinfulness alone but the need to transform institutions. Um, so that's it, more or less. Um, so a really brief view of the doctrine of the fall. Yes, we need to deal with our individual uh, perverted desires. No, I don't think evil as um, parasitic is enough, given see, what we see of some of the gross evils that we've seen throughout history. Yes, um, the universe is ever-evolving, and it would seem that um, suffering and evil are part of the process, but no, human beings do not need to choose to magnify that in our choices uh, by the Anthropocene, and dealing with that really will mean dealing with institutional evil. So recent churches' denial, for example, of um, critical race theory is just another example of being very blinkered in our understanding of what the fall really means. 
whether or not you take it as historical or not. So that's enough for another episode. Thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.